0: This is episode number 391 with founder of Elder Research, John Elder. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. We've got an outstanding episode coming up for you. You probably noticed that this one is longer than usual because I just couldn't stop. <laughs> John and I had so much fun on this episode and I learned so much. So John is one of the most experienced, uh, you might as well say, veterans of the field of data science. He's actually been doing what we call now data science for the past 25 years. There is company Elder Research, which he founded in 1995. He's got tons of experience. So it's a consulting company that has worked uh, in lots of industries from healthcare to stock trading to the IT industry to lots of other commercial industry to government and and more. <laughs> lots and lots of fun in this podcast. You will learn a ton regardless of your level. You're going to pick up a lot of cool things here. So the things we talked about, calculus, statistics, and resampling, taking uh, problems from the real world into the data domain and back, the importance of domain knowledge and how to develop it, Speaking with your clients, noticing anomalies in the data, campfire tales in data science. So, John shared some really cool stories of him being in data science and the projects that he's done. And that will help you in your work to incorporate some of the best principles, but most importantly, avoid some of the most dangerous mistakes. Then, we talked about data leaks from the future, ensemble methods. This was a big focus of the podcast. So, if you want to learn about ensembles and why they're important, why they're powerful and why they're actually simpler, and how do you measure simplicity uh, in data science, this is going to be very valuable for you. We talked about Occam's Razor, complexity of machine learning models, generalized degrees of freedom, and neural networks, the crisis of data science, and why p-values don't work, and what is the method to use, instead of p-values or in addition to p-values, to make sure that your insights or your research, especially your research, is valid. So this topic, this question has been brought up several times on the podcast before. P-values are destroying the world unfortunately, the world of research. And we, we have a lot of research that is actually not reproducible. John answers this question. This is the best way I've heard it answered ever. And you will learn about the target shuffling method highly recommend even if you just get ensembles and target shuffling out of this you're going to take your data science uh, acumen to a whole new level love this podcast can't wait for you to check it out so let's dive straight into it and i bring to you founder of elder research john elder Welcome back to the Super Day Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. And today's special guest is John Elder calling in from Charlottesville, Virginia. John, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Good. Thank you, Kirill, for having me.
0: So excited to have you. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about, but I want to start with, rather than an icebreaker, <laughs> a waterbreaker of sorts. John, tell us about your first bungee jump.
1: That is So I was visiting my cousin in british columbia with my son and the and her son and my son were doing teenage boy stuff video games and here we are in the most one of the most beautiful places in god's earth and uh they're inside and i said we got to get out and we got to do something so let's do something we've never done before and we find a a place where you can do bungee jumping over a a, over a shallow river uh and (laughs) boys are they they're pretending to be interested in this and you get weighed beforehand on the on the bottom. And apparently for some people, that's the scariest part. Um, they, they actually write the weight in, in ink on your hand in, in black magic marker. Uh, so there's no confusion at the top or if anybody's modest about that. And when I get up there and show them the, the number, they're like, oh, bring out Big Bertha. So they get this humongous cable that they don't normally have to use. They have a towel wrapped around your leg and they, they wrap this big cable around. They said, do you want to be dipped in the water or not? So 400 below, feet below, there's this, this little trickle of water. And I said, sure. you know, And they must have miscalculated because in a moment of insanity, I throw myself off and I go head first in and hit the water, go about 10 feet deep in the water, and then get pulled back you know, feet first up. Down. If you ever needed to clear your nasal passages, this is a, a very... Efficient <laughs> way to do it you know so and i get pulled back up through the water and you know and i'm not doing any of the acrobatic things i thought i might do uh up there and they're quickly wheeling me down to be carted off and folks on the sideline are like wow did you did you pay extra for that and i said like, no, no i didn't <laughs> and 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 <laughs> so you know my i i, I bungee jumped once in my life now my son did it he he found it to be fascinating he ended up doing it again in new zealand later and uh where they invented that the the, uh, the the kiwis invented uh adventure sports basically and um but anyway i learned from that never bungee jump over a parking lot so you know but <laughs> the, uh, if you're an outlier they they haven't necessarily calibrated the system for you so uh, beware
0: that's insane that's uh that's a crazy story and uh i re- so I was watching one of your talks uh, from 2017 at um, the University of Virginia School of Data Science. And you told that story. And the the most strangest part to me is that it was related to some research or some statistics showing that walking into a hospital is as risky as doing a bunch of jump. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, and I couldn't help. I do this free association and ended up telling that story. I didn't plan to tell that story. But, you know, I was trying to tell people, you know, That's pretty risky, but just, yeah, literally a a researcher on risk had shown that literally walking into a hospital as a healthy person is as risky as that crazy thing that I did voluntarily one time, but I've walked into a hospital many more times than that, not aware that it was equivalent to wrapping a big rubber band around a towel around my ankles and flinging myself off a 400 foot cliff. You know, because of what you can pick up in a hospital, and this was pre-COVID, and and what was going on was the the several people were of us were invited to a, a post-challenger. You know, you can tell the day, how old this was, but a post-challenger analysis of what what had gone wrong, and you know how can we assess risk better, and so forth. So, um, people, it, it's it's amazing how many risky things we do without realizing it and how people assess risk and what the real risks are, are often so, so completely different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading a book now called Predictably Irrational, and uh, it re- echoes another thing that you said in one of your talks, that 95%... by uh, David I don't remember the author. I, I, I can check, but um, um, it, one, of the, one of your talks, you said that 95% of our decisions actually are... Not from our logical brain, are like it happens spontaneously. They're irrational, and only five percent is what uh, we actually you know think and logic and all those things. So no wonder, right? So no wonder we don't assess risk logically.
1: Yeah, and and that's uh, not my research. That comes from uh, cognitive bias uh, psychology research and so forth. That says that we basically have a, a model of two. There's a, a cognitive model that there's two brain systems one that's intuitive and quick reacting and works astonishingly well. Uh, and it's it's works with almost no energy expenditure. So when we're lazy or happy, uh, it's the one we use and it's the one we want to use. And then the 5% is the cognitive part that analysts are trained to use. And it takes effort and energy and it exhausts us to use it. And you can actually tell when it's being used because your eyes dilate. So if you're Asked to multiply three times mm. seven, you can do it without thinking almost. But if you had to multiply two or three-digit three numbers, you would pause, you would focus, you would actually, your, your peripheral vision would go, your hearing would pause, all sorts of things could go on <laughs> around you and you would miss it. I even knew somebody who would walk down a hallway and stop and put their head against the wall and they were like thinking about something. And they couldn't even walk and think at the same time, you know? So when they would finish thinking and they keep moving, you know, so, you know, it's just like, it takes wow. effort and, and that's what we have to use to do this analytic stuff. And it's exhausting. So you can understand why management types never want to use that, you know? So, you know, so uh, <laughs> and what I tell people, <laughs> what I tell people is we analytics, we're that 5% of a company's brain. You know, and we're doing all the hard work and we're keeping them from just using their gut or using intuition, which does work an astonishingly large part of the time, but it's just fooled. It's fooled and it doesn't even know it's fooled. And so I'm a big fan of cognitive biases because they tell us how easily we are fooled and made to to, to do things that make no sense at all if you take the time to, to look into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and. Uh, speaking of uh, hard work, if I was thinking about this earlier, that if there was a trophy for the most years in data science, you would have first place. <laughs> twenty-five years. 25, twenty-five years in. Yeah, twenty-five years living off of
1: data science. So you know, I've been doing it longer than that. Um, but saying, "Hey, I want to do this full time. This is this is this is what I want to do. This is what I was built for." And oh, by the way, honey, I have a wife, you know, and had three kids at the time and a mortgage. Uh we're we're gonna make a living off this, okay? You know, so yeah, that was a that was a kind of a bold move in '95. But um, I had been I had the great good fortune of working for a small company starting in nineteen eighty that actually did inductive modeling. I was a undergrad doing summer summer work for a company called Adaptronics in Northern Virginia that was building inductive models using, you know, polynomial neural networks, they were called, they were, they were out of the group method of data handling, which is a Ukrainian method uh, by a fellow named Ivak Ninko. But uh, anyway, it was a cool method that, that was sort of a cross between regression and neural nets, and it, it adaptively built the structure of its model according to how complex the problem was. And it was just a fascinating idea that you could that you could um, be like a crystal ball to see the future, and you could build a model that adapted to how complex the data was and how much of it you had, and um, and be able to predict the future. And um, you know, I studied electrical engineering; that was just kind of the the, the, the mm-hmm. most interesting, closest sort of technical thing. I never took a statistics class, unfortunately a real statistics class until I had actually been out in industry and even written a data mining algorithm. So it was sort of self-taught at statistics. And then when I came, when I had worked for five years in sort of the aerospace consulting industry, wrote the data science algorithm and, and all went back to school, got my uh, PhD in systems engineering. But systems engineering is so flexible that I was able to kind of turn it into a data science interdisciplinary before there was data science did a postdoc for a couple of years and then started my company. So, you know, it was like, it was real early. It was called data mining. They, the phrase data mining was coming out then and, uh, you know, presented in some of the early data mining conferences. And it was a really, a lot of activity going on. Then it was a very, very fun time. Uh, didn't yeah, really get no, caught up in the dot-com very... stuff, uh, yeah. but uh, watched a lot of other people have, the, the boom and bust and some of them some of them did well sorry
0: go maybe, ahead. maybe that saved you yeah uh, it might have it was, speaking uh, of statistics speaking of statistics i liked one time uh you said that statistics is like calculus plus buddhism a con- combination of the two and uh and, and then you jokes. elaborated that <laughs> uh, you, and then you elaborated that um now like calculus was designed because we didn't have fast enough computers and it was like a, um, a shortcut to get to the results but now we have super fast computers and why are we still teaching calculus when we can be teaching things like resampling and you know brute force methods which uh the, in your opinion is that going to lead to a better generation of data scientists and researchers?
1: yeah i mean obviously calculus has its has its purposes outside of statistics but in the statistics world most of the calculus type things are approximations and shortcuts to what they're really trying to do and a much more accurate in many cases approximation and shortcut can be done through simulation using using computers using uh random monte carlo and simulation and so forth and resampling is just that it's saying hey i've got a seven-sided die, maybe it's a seven-sided die or a 12-sided die, and it, even, it doesn't even have evenly, spa- it's been hand-carved, so it doesn't even have evenly spaced sides. And so, what's the best way to figure out the probability that each side's going to show up? Just roll it a 1,000 times or 10,000 times and, and see if you can, uh, and just measure the, the probability. That's, that's really a very simple, and, and, and then in the end, a very accurate way to do things. So, why not do everything that way, roughly speaking? And, and not try to, to have a formula to figure it out. And if you teach students these things, and it gets them thinking about the problem and not getting caught up in the math, uh, and it makes so many, other, so many problems solvable, and you can get a close, good approximation quickly to almost everything instead of saying, wait a minute, I've got to spend hours figuring out the theory or what, you know, Formula works here, or maybe no formula works here, and you have this sick feeling that you know you find the best formula that's closest, but you don't know how to measure closeness. And anyway, it's just it's just a wonderful freeing thing, and um, it's a tool that works on every problem to some extent. And and it's just uh, coming from a computer science engineering background, it's like wow, now statistics make sense, and and so anybody. And when they've done experiments, teaching people the old way and the, and the even older way, <laughs> you know, the counting versus the equation, <laughs> people who do the counting, which is now possible when you have this blindingly fast, you know, obedient servant of the computer and you don't have to do it yourself. Everyone who uses the resampling, uh, not everyone, every class that uses the resampling method to learn solves problems better and more accurately.
0: Very, very cool. How how long do you think it will take for uh, us to shift from uh, that old mentality to the new approach? I think it'll take a long time because there
1: seems to be a um, huge bias that if I went through the pain, you have to go through the pain. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I it, it's if someone used metrics. You know, if academia had a performance based metric that said how hard is it to achieve a goal of teaching this concept and achieving and, and attaining this capability, it would be over quickly. Because mm-hmm. you can achieve the capability and, and and teach the concept much more quickly with resampling. But that does not apparently the way academia thinks about much mm-hmm. of anything. Um, I think the key, my joke about statistics being a combination of calculus and Buddhism is there seems to be with statistics, a philosophy that people have to break through. Um, the idea that you don't truly know where something is, but you have a distribution that describes the possible places that something is, you know, sort of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, sort of like the quantum view of the world rather than the deterministic view of the world. And I think there's like, again, it's almost this philosophical or religious sort of breakthrough about the, the, the nature of matter. I have to admit, I was a kind of a determinist, you know, as a a electrical engineer, physicist type person, you know, F equals MA. If I have a particle and it's traveling through space, Then, if I knew just if I knew everything about it, I would know exactly where it is at a given time. And statistics says no. There's more of a Heisenberg. You know, there's more of an uncertainty principle around. There's more of a distribution around it. It, It's kind of the philosophy you have to have. And and uh, because even though you sample and you measure something at a given time, the question is what's going to happen in the future. And the measurements you have now are just hints about the future. Um, So you always I always tell my colleagues anytime. Don't be satisfied with a point estimate. Be a statistician and get a distribution, you know, and um, that's just the biggest breakthrough from statistics.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. Are you subscribed to the Data Science Insider? Personally, I love the Data Science Insider. It is something that we created, so I'm biased, but I do get a lot of value out of it. Uh, Data Science Insider, if you don't know, is a free, absolutely free newsletter which we send out into your inbox every Friday. Very easy to subscribe to. Go to superdatascience.com. And what do we put uh, together there? Well, our team goes through the most important updates over the past week or maybe several weeks and finds the news related to data science and artificial intelligence. You can get swamped with all the news even if you filter it down to just AI and data science. And that's why our team does this work for you. Our team goes through all this news and Find the top 5, simply 5 articles that you will find interesting for your personal and professional growth. Uh, They are then summarized, put into one email, and at a click of a button, you can access them, look through the summaries. You don't even have to go and read the whole article. You can just read the summary and be up to speed with what's going on in the world. And if you're interested in what exactly is happening in detail, then you can click the link and read the original article itself. I do that almost every week myself. I go through the articles and sometimes I find something interesting. I dig into it. So if you'd like to get the updates of the week in your inbox, subscribe to the Data Science Insider absolutely free at superdatascience.com slash DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. We completely skipped the intros. <laughs> Tell us a bit about... Uh... Elder Research, what what do you guys do over there? Yeah, well, we started 25 years ago, and we're about 100 people now in five offices,
1: Charlottesville, Virginia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Arlington, Virginia, uh, near D.C., uh, Linthicum, Maryland, near Baltimore, and London is our, 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 our most recent office. Um, we do data science consulting, education, uh, with three main areas, um, commercial, uh, federal government, and cleared uh, top secret work. We got into that after the 9-11 attack, and a lot of people were really motivated to try to do whatever they could to, uh, to pitch in and, and, and help that sort of thing not happen again. Um, and uh, the commercial work has been a lot of fun because we work with a lot of uh, companies, big and small, and work in a lot of great areas and learn something new every time. Uh, the the, 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 what astonishes a lot of people who look at us is the variety of things we work with. And part of that is my fault. Cause I'm a little ADD and I like, mm-hmm. wait, a squirrel. No, I like, you know, I like <laughs> doing all sorts of things, uh, and just love the variety, love the fact that, you know, we worked on our very first big, huge project was helping hedge funds on wall street, you know? So, uh, and we helped discover, uh, a drug that, uh, with pharmacy and Upjohn now Pfizer, that they were basically thinking was a dud, and we helped show them it was a really uh, fantastic compound, and it became one of the three drugs that they discovered in a decade due to our work. Uh, you know, and we didn't know—I don't know anything about pharmacology. Chemistry was my worst subject in school, but I know a lot about data, and that's the thing—is you can and and we've worked in anti-fraud and and uncovered uh, you know billions of dollars worth of fraud. Uh, for our customers, and so forth. So, you know, we've, we've done recommendation engines and, and uh, diagnosed diseases and found new ways to recognize Parkinson's, for instance, and, you know, just all sorts of fantastic things and learn something in every stage. So we're always learning new things. And then when you learn something in one project, it can often help you with breakthroughs in another project because you're learning about data. You're learning about new patterns of data, new types of features. You're learning very cool things. So I, in electrical engineering, I was, a, I was a signal processing guy. And in the signal processing world, there's one main trick. You take data that's in the time frequency, and, a time domain, and you translate it into the frequency domain, where sometimes things are really, really clear. And you can filter it you know, and take out a low-pass filter, and, or you can uh, you know, take out you know, high-frequency stuff or whatever. You can do all sorts of cool things and then translate it back into the time domain. And so, something that might be really clear in one domain and then and, and, uh, trivial to solve there, well, that's what we do with data science. We transfer the real-world problem into kind of the data domain, and sometimes things are really clear there and go back into the real world. But the really cool thing is you can take your pharmaceutical problem or your aerospace problem or your, or your uh, stock market prediction problem or your fraud problem, and they kind of all are not that different in the data domain. And so tricks you've learned from one adventure in the data domain can often be used in the other. And we just have to learn the vocabulary of the client, the kind of problem they're looking at, some of their special cases, and then we can use all of our tricks and wisdom to their benefit in a very, very efficient manner.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic way of looking at it. Going into the data domain and then coming back—it's like uh, going into the matrix from wherever you are. It's exactly, like yeah. kind of the same. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, what? Are, so, uh, a couple of questions, but let's start with this one. What's uh, um, the data domain? Okay, okay. Well, bi- domain knowledge—that's the thing. So, going from the real world to the data domain and going from data domain back to the real world requires. Um, understanding of domain knowledge, and that's what you said. Like sitting with the clients. Do you have any advice, tips, tricks you've learned over the twenty-five years how to master this domain knowledge quickly? Because that's the main roadblock.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that you you have to have access. You have to have sort of on-demand access with the subject matter experts, the SMEs. Uh, uh, And this sometimes scares the client because you're like they they imagine you're going to need a lot of their time, and that's going to be a big hidden cost to them. So we say no. Look, we're talking—you know—two hours a week. You know, we're talking. This is not going to be much time, but when I need them, I need them. You know, it's like I got to be able to get them within a couple of hours of the call or something because it's going to hold us up. We we've got to meet with them. We got to know about what their problem is, what their what their aims are. We got to talk about what's your pain uh, with the business owner. You know, who's who's got the problem? What are they looking at? A lot. Of, there's a key thing. It's interesting. Systems engineering is kind of an interesting. Uh, domain because there's there's kind of a principle in system engineering that the that the client doesn't always know what they want. Like if they knew what they want, they could kind of do it themselves. And and sometimes that's interpreted as like the client is an idiot. You know, it's like <laughs> that, that is not right. The client doesn't know how to exactly define what they want. They know they have pain. Like their side, you know, something hurts. They get this pain in their side. But they don't know how to define always in a, in a particular, in a technical way, in a way that you can make it a, a problem in the back of an engineering textbook. You know,
0: they know the symptoms,
1: they know the symptoms and you've got to be able to help figure out, are they trying to maximize throughput? Are they trying to get rid of things that cause downtime? You know, are, what is, the, what are the aims? What are the objectives? What's the criteria of merit for this thing that I'm going to turn into an optimization problem? And then, um, and maybe there's multiple criteria of measurement. there's multiple problems. And then you got to figure out, well, which ones are causing the most pain. And so there's a lot of communication. So there's, there's that part of the sort of the consulting problem of listening to them. And I'm not the world's best listener. So one thing I've learned is, (laughs) oh, I want them to listen to me, you know, so I've (laughs) got to take along somebody who is a good listener because you know, I'm thinking, yeah. what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? No, I got to take along somebody who takes good notes and listens to them. And people use vocabulary words in different ways. You know, like we had a, a client, we were doing oil and gas well predictions. We're trying to predict which gas wells were going to freeze. Now, what does that word mean to you, freeze? This is in upper Northwest U.S. <laughs> in the cold times. You think that means temperature. And, and above ground, yeah. these, these pipes would freeze, literally freeze. But below ground, they don't freeze. But they use that word freeze for any kind of clogging of any kind. And there's a clogging that occurs when these particulates get together and they have to use methane to to dissolve it. Or they use a steel plunger to to literally, you know, a huge steel plunger to, to plunge and break up these. This is when <laughs> fracking has occurred and so forth. But it, it was a year into the project before we realized that the vice president of this Major international oil and gas company also thought of freeze as including work, uh, gas production stoppage of any kind, including scheduled maintenance. Hmm. So, you know, to him, freeze meant we are not getting money. Money is not coming out of the ground. <laughs> you know, and that makes perfect sense after the fact. But of course, why would that occur to us? No one told us that. You know, yeah. we were asking, we asked, probably 50 times so by you know this thing called active listening if you've ever done marital counseling or anything like that you know it's like (laughs) what i hear you saying is you know you say back to the person what they said and you you try to well that's what you marital counseling is really good practice for consulting what i hear (laughs) is freezing is this and you know they're like no no it's but nobody ever said that but you know, that's a whole different problem. And by the way, they didn't keep records of their scheduled maintenance. So we had to predict mm-hmm. when their scheduled maintenance would be and have had <laughs> that as part of our, our problem. So anyway, it's just so you might have learned from glean from this that there's a lot of communication that has to occur. You have to continually be asking somebody, so what does this common word that everyone's using mean? You know, and <laughs> here's what I think it means. And they'll say, Oh, but and and new stuff will come up. All the time, there's nobody that ever gives you a full list of requirements. It's it's sort of an evolving, rolling thing, and you and that you sh- you can't let that shock you. You have to you have to keep going at it, and keep poking at it. And what'll thing is you'll find stuff that's weird, and you've got to show it back to them and say, "What does this mean to you?" And what I tell my folks, and by the way, not every analytic person is outgoing. I'm I'm like an extreme extrovert. I'm an outlier. And I find it hard to talk to people because you, we all want to have, you know, this enormously finished and polished and beautiful thing that we present and we get our blue ribbon, right? Well, we will have polished the wrong rock. If we do that. Okay. Hmm. We have got to communicate with them while it's still very crude and completely ugly, and we have nothing to show for our work because. Uh, we'll, we'll be solving the wrong problem if we don't do that. So we, f- I force our people to talk to the client every week for an hour at least and get stuff back. You know, much more often than anyone's comfortable doing, especially some of the introverted technical people. You know, mm-hmm. it's just very painful, but it's it's essential.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, outstanding! I love it. It really reminds uh, me. I'm reading this book uh, called The Lean Startup right now. Wow. Uh, and it's about like how to build products. Not nothing to do with data science, but it's about how to build products and businesses uh, in a lean way. So meeting with, with minimum amount of wasteful work. So the work you do is u- is useful. And what you're saying is like really just resembles the book very, very closely because there, you to- Eric Rice talks about speaking to customers all the time. And this is just a practice we started in our company like a few weeks ago now. And already we're getting so much information, like even just speaking to them when we don't really think we need to
1: speak to them. Exactly. Still
0: scheduling those calls.
1: You have to, you you don't think you have anything to say. You're like, well, we just looked at the data. We don't have anything to show for it. You know, and of the 600 items, and they're like, 600 items? What are you talking about? You know, (laughs) you know, I mean, and and you're like, aren't there 3,000? I thought there were, you know, and you're like, wait, what do you mean? You know, and you know, so there's, you you already learn something even when you don't think you're learning something. For instance, we mm-hmm. were given we did some work for a, a large uh, software company, uh, and they had a whole bunch of of data, and we were supposed to look for you know sequences that the users used. Uh, part of the problem was just data engineering. Just they had recorded a whole bunch of data. People said, yeah, record. Yes, I agree to record all of my keystrokes and they had uh, never looked at that data. One definition of big data, my definition of big data, is data no one's ever looked at.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> uh,
1: and so they'd been recording this for a long time, and, and it was very uh, unstructured. So, you know, these sequences could be extremely brief, or they could be days long of all these keystrokes, and no one had ever really looked at it. So, you know, we have some good good software engineers who were able to, you know, build a tool to ingest all this data and, and look at these sessions, And one of the questions is, what kind of keystroke sequences lead to crashes? What kind of customers do we have, users? Can we cluster them into different uh, segments? Um, You know, are there some keystrokes that maybe we should build shortcuts for? Are there training opportunities that we see people using in efficient ways to use it? All sorts of cool things you could learn from this unstructured data. In some cases, it was... uh, supervised learning because some outcomes like crashes versus non crashes, but others it was unsupervised data. So it was kind of open ended, but we found something that was that trumped all of that. It was a data artifact. Basically there was a there was uh, basically there were a lot of users that weren't registered in their system. And it turned oh. out there were a lot of users that hadn't paid for the software. Now these are users that voluntarily said track my every keystroke. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's not all the users that were using the software, but these were the ones that said, yeah, sure, track every keystroke. So this was like I, and this was a best, this is a great example of rolling what I call rolling a hand grenade into the boardroom. You know, sometimes uh-huh. we have a finding and we don't know what that impact has on the company. Sometimes people get fired over a finding we have. you like, we report something and like here was a finding. Okay, there is there are users, a good chunk of your users that haven't paid for your software. This is not supposed to be possible. Do you remember it, what percentage? I'm not gonna say. And so <laughs> they halted our project, right? This kills the project right away. I mean, who cares what the clustering of the users is? Yeah, right? Right? At this yeah, point, yeah, yeah. Something much more important has come up. So it's in our short term, it's bad for us. But of course, in the long term, we just found something that nobody thought of that's way more important than the project we were asked to find, right? There's a data artifact. It's early in the process, but it comes from looking intelligently at the data and asking questions. Is there something weird here? And then getting back to the client and, you know, this is important. Look at this. And then am going, oh my gosh, you're right. And uh, ultimately they fixed that problem and then came back to us and said, proceed, you know, so... <laughs> You know, that, that's, the, that's the kind of value you can bring. You can bring value that no one even dreamed of because you're the first to look at it and you're looking at it intelligently with your client's interests at heart.
0: Mm, and you can do that even if you're not a consultant, even if you're working in the company and exactly. you have
1: access to the data. Absolutely. How, if you know, you know how, what you're doing. And you, yeah, but how,
0: how do you do you, like, do you need to consciously look for it? Like, What's the, what's the advice here? How does one uh, make sure to incorporate that type of analytics you
1: know way. that is a that is a huge question uh, isaac asimov has a, has a, who was a great science fiction writer who was actually wrote about real science too and he had a phrase he said that the most interesting phrase in science is not eureka i've found it mm-hmm. it's that's odd
2: <laughs>
1: you know and i and it even gives me chills when i say it now think about it to think that something is odd means you have to have expectations. So when you're looking at data and you, you say, huh, that's off. That means that you, you had to know something about what should be there. You can't be just looking at numbers. You have to know something about what they mean and what the business problem is, you know? And so that means you have to, you have to know something about the data and the problem and and what you're expecting and that domain knowledge has to be kind of translated into what you think you're looking for. You have to have some kind of a hypothesis and then you see something and you're like, that's weird. And then you follow that. So it's been a few years now, but there was a show called monk, which is kind of a Sherlock Holmes as a modern day person with, uh, who was uh, obsessed with details and, but couldn't really function in the real world. Actually he would do quite well during the pandemic because he was germaphobe and, he wouldn't shake hands with people without, you know, a wipe or something. Anyway, it was, it was, it was a good <laughs> show, but you know, you have to be kind of like that. You have to be a real weirdo and be obsessed with some details. And, you know, we had a, we had a problem once with a, uh, well, we had a data. I was working with a guy I really liked. And he was a former air force guy who started his own company and was early, early, uh, you know, recommendation engine thing. And trying to figure out what characteristics of different customers made them good prospects for some of their woodworking tools that they were selling through catalogs. And I was finding some weird relationships in, in who was responding and the, and the, and I was kind of pointing out, well, there's something weird in the data. And, and he had given me a very specific task that he wanted me to do. This was early on in the company. And, uh, he was kind of a colorful guy. And eventually he says, God damn it, stop talking to me about that and get on with the task, you know? And so I use this sometimes as an example. What do you do? You've got a client or a boss that's told you to do this, but you're, you've noticed something weird in the data that you believe it's his best interest that you really need to look at that, you know, and that sort of leave that as an open-ended question for somebody and see how they struggle with it. And of course, you know, as a boss paying someone salary they can't say ignore the boss and do this, right? right. That is not the right answer, but it's mm-hmm. also not the right answer to ignore, you know, and there's, there's kind of the answer that I'm looking for, which is what I did, which is you had to do both, you know, do the thing your boss or, or you, you haven't earned the pay, but if you can't convince them, obviously, but then in your own time, you gotta, you've got to follow up on your own thing, or you're just not in the right business. Um, and I did, and I found, The problem, they, the merge purge house that puts all the different lists together and then does the final mailing out, they were automatically excluding international clients, but the international Mm. clients were, uh, were not being sent catalogs. They weren't being pinged, but those guys were, were ordering some of these tools. And sometimes they were like ordering, they would get a catalog if they ordered something. So sometimes they were just ordering something just to get a catalog, you know, so so like they would have ordered a lot more if they'd been prompted with catalogs, but they were being thrown out. So, you know, the, the, this little relationship between orderings and, and mailings and so forth that fit for everybody else wasn't holding up for them. And, uh, anyway, we 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 built some models. We found that they improved the quality of the papers to make a a more attractive catalog, and they doubled their sales per catalog. So unfortunately, they did all those things at once. So it didn't really say how much did it, that one finding matter, but doubling their sales was a huge step, and and part of it was that. And so I kind of won a a friend for life, you know, by ignoring him a little bit and doing uh, <laughs> the thing that I knew it was best. I mean, I did I did what he wanted to. And so he was, he was super happy with that, but you know, you just have to follow your instincts um, not to the exclusion of doing what you were told, but you ha- And, and you get these instincts from, from experience. So you can't, there's, there's almost really no shortcut to it, but if you, if you can get together with, with other folks and swap stories, and especially stories of mistakes, that's one reason I kind of emphasize mistakes I have, The top ten data mining mistakes is one of my chapters in the in the data handbook that uh, data science uh, handbook that we we wrote a few years back and um, and the mistake stories are so much more interesting because best practices are boring. I mean, you know, brush your (laughs) teeth, call your mom, that kind of stuff is boring. You want to read about the guys who you know did everything wrong. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, makes total sense. And it's interesting you mentioned follow your instincts for. Data scientists, because you like that's people expect the opposite. That data scientists are very rigorous, logical, straightforward. So uh, it's it's uh, comforting to hear that instincts do play a role. Because one of the recent um, trends, I guess, uh, that people talk about is: will data scientists ever get replaced by tools like AutoML and you know, like all these uh, automated machine machine learning tools and data science tools? So what do you think? Do you think uh, data scientists will have a place always or one day even machines will be able to follow these instincts?
1: You know, um, there's more and more can be done automatically and, uh, and that's in general a good thing. Uh, I think there's of course always a place for that translation of the problem from a new problem, from you know, the real world to the, the technical problem. Uh, I think it's great to have well-established uh, protocols and practices for setting up a testing protocol, you know, without a sample data and making sure that there's no leaks from the future and so forth like that. So those are good places to have a well-established protocol and, and to understand why you're doing that and so forth. But where it's really, really good to have instinct and, and have experience and, and, you know, a really wise person is one who can learn from the mistakes of others, you know, and doesn't have to make the mistakes themselves. So mm-hmm. if you can sit around the campfire and tell stories, that's extremely valuable. Uh, some idiots have to learn only by doing it themselves. So, you know, so you're, you, it's going to take a lot longer. Uh, and I, I count myself partly and mostly in that camp but uh, luckily I've, I've made a lot of those <laughs> mistakes now. So, um, but, but yeah, if anybody can, can benefit from, from the stories, I think my, 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 uh, colleagues get a little tired because I'll say, Oh, that reminds me. And then uh, it like oh, another hmm. story, you know, but, but, you know, it, they, then, you know, it sometimes it saves them a month. So hmm. I, I, we did some, we did some training of, um, it's kind of like if you've seen karate Kid, it's kind of an old movie now, but uh Mr. Miyagi gets the young man to to paint his fence in a very particular way uh and uh, it seems utterly crazy to the youngster why he's doing that and then all of a sudden in a in a, in a combat situation you know he's, he's he's using those moves those particular moves that he's done hundreds of times, and uh this sort of thing happened recently we we've, we've got a nice uh, relationship with a large consumer goods company uh several actually but but one of them we're, we're, we're doing a lot of training and the training is very intensive we're training their data scientists to up their game a little bit and uh you know we're talking about techniques and stuff but i'm also telling uh some stories and early on they're like oh my gosh when's he going to get to the point why is he telling <laughs> stories and then uh after after one story i asked folks to um just write down one point that they heard from that story they thought might be useful, you know, and amongst them, they had maybe four or five things that came up and then, you know, a week later revealed, okay, here were the 12 points from that story that would have helped you on this, <laughs> this, uh, homework problem that you had, oh, you wow. know, like <laughs> that were embedded in that story, you know, that the lessons that were learned and, 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 and after a few weeks, you know, light bulbs started to go off. And, you know, a lot of people were, were, uh, were grinning and and telling me about, I get it now, you know, and what they were, what they were being really annoyed with early on is like, oh my gosh, this old guy is wasting our time telling these stories. They, they were, um, they were realizing, wait a minute, this is the best part of the course. And and actually, there's a little bit of that was given away because the the director of the whole group, you know, there's hundreds of people reporting to him, dropped in for part of the course, was there for one of the stories. And I didn't tell these stories constantly, okay? I just but he was uh-huh. there for one of the stories, and then his colleague told me he retold that story six times that next day to, to different groups all over because it was like it was uh-huh. such a he thought it did such a great job of illuminating a particular problem that he had never thought of before. And so I was like, okay, that was a win, you know? So the the (laughs) most, the most senior people like got it. And, and it took a little while for the more junior people to realize, oh my gosh, you know, these are like proverbs, you know, these have nuggets in them. So anyway, I was, I I was, I was getting, I wasn't getting the love at first, but it eventually came around and, uh, and, you know, but those, those, those are, those campfire tales, you know, are extremely efficient ways to pass on the wisdom from the previous generation. And, um, you know, uh, if you can, it's like, you know, you're talking about a particular beast that you ran into in the forest. And if the younger folks can recognize it when it comes around, I'm telling you, it'll save you a month of work. And, uh, and, um, And you'll be way better for it.
0: Gosh, gotcha. okay. I'm so intrigued. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> what oh, is this well, the, story? Well, the one
1: that, the, the, okay, the one that I that I told there. I mean, it's going to this is going to be such a letdown after that buildup, but you know, it's <laughs> just it's just one of the one of the top ten data mining mistakes is leaks from the future, and and that's the idea that anything that was in your training data, you might have thought you did a good job of saying here's what I knew at the time, but really something from the future leaked and got in there. And this can come in very subtle ways. And in this particular instance, we were working with a small startup company, not something we do much anymore. That's one, by the way, you know, there's this problem, there's a side story here, and this is one of the problems of telling stories is sometimes a side story comes up. Well, I'll get back to that about startup companies. Uh, I'll get back to the side story, uh, why we don't work with startup Mm -hmm. companies very much anymore. Um, But startup companies get a little desperate. They are so invested in solving the problem because everything depends on it that they sometimes lose sight of the truth. Okay. We are servants of the truth. We have to give people a bad, we have to give the people the answer they don't want if that's what the data says. Startups tend to not do that. They tend to get the answer they want come hell or high water. Okay. And this particular guy, a PhD in computer science, was very smart, very productive. He'd write 300 lines of code a night, but he kept making the same mistake over and over, no matter what we, no matter how much I tried to teach him not to. And so the mistake was they had a fixed amount of data because it was a biological problem. They're trying to predict a particular kind of disease in a very clever way, shining infrared light through the skin and have it reflect on the blood. And the blood chemistry would be, re- would be revealed by the spectrum of light that reflected back. A lot of information in that. There's a lot of cool things you can do with that. They were actually getting enough information back to do some really cool things. The problem was they had to have a certain level of accuracy better than blood tests to unseat the barbaric blood tests that were being done to, to, uh, currently for that particular diagnosis. Um, they were close. They actually had published a journal article proving they were getting a certain level of accuracy. But when we came in and did it right, we showed them that their real accuracy was worse. So our first contribution was shown that they were actually doing worse than they thought they were doing. So, yay us. They were not real happy. <laughs> but we, we eventually got them back up to where they thought they were. And they're like, okay, great. Now we are, we're, you've gotten us back up to where we thought we were when we first hired you, but we need to get up to here. And 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 that was a struggle. The problem is they had a f- fixed amount of data. You know, they'd, they'd spent a fair amount of money getting experimental results from a whole bunch of people with the hardware that they built. So they built the hardware, they built the software, it's new technology. There wasn't a lot of data. This is a hard this is a hard thing. You need more data. Big data is not the problem. It's small data is the problem. Because then you're gonna learn too much from it. It's not gonna be able to get good out of sample results, right? You're gonna know too much about your data. Overfitting overfitting and this was a huge problem for them they knew too much about their data they had a hard time separating data out keeping it completely unknown to whatever learning they were doing and then having a true out of sample test so here's the here's what happened they they take the matrix of data they built uh we we got them on into principal components so they did a principal component feature of the entire data set then split it into training and testing train the model on the principal components of the set, and then use the model on the out-of-sample principal component values and got a prediction. What did they do wrong? Well, they calculated...
0: Oh, I know, I know, I know. When when they were doing the principal components, they did it on the whole thing, not on the separate parts. Exactly,
1: exactly. So the principal components, you got it. And and not many people do. So way to go. Good job.
2: Hey, bless.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: And you would think that wouldn't be that big a deal because the principal components are just redrawing the axes, but the principal components are peeking ahead. If there's any kind of outlier in the out-of-sample data, the principal components are pointing at it. The principal mm-hmm. components are affected by it. They're not so surprised by it. It's part of mm-hmm. it's part of defining. The component
0: principal component
1: yeah and it's astonishing how much difference it made when you did it right when you calculate the principal components based on the training data alone and then use those weights as features on the out of sample data you do much worse in this particular case and it's That's like true. dang you know it didn't it, i didn't think it would do that much worse but i knew we had to do it that way and and actually what happened, I don't know if it was on that particular one or if it was on another one because it happened like 20 times, but one time they called up, you know, we, we were physically with them a lot of the time. We were apart and it was one of the times we were apart from them. And I had a brand new PhD uh, employee who said, oh, sit with me on this call. You'll learn how to do consulting. And, and he, was, he was a very polite, uh, well-educated guy, you know, and he's like uh, sitting right with me. And I'm, I'm a, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm like super, you know, polite person, you know, anyway, I'm on this call and they said, Oh, we got these great results and we did this well. And I, 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 I stood up and I said, I don't give a F. I said the word out loud. I don't think I've ever done that in public as best I know. (laughs) And especially to a client on the call and, you know, (laughs) And My colleague's eyes are this big. And what result you got, you did it wrong. I said, I feel like a guy standing at the edge of a cliff trying to keep you from driving off. You're doing it wrong. Listen, do it right. And if you get good results, don't pay our bill. Fire us. You're doing fine. If you get the results that I think you're going to get, which are wrong, pay our bill, and then decide whether you want to keep using us or not but don't call me again with this same mistake <laughs> and 3 days later they called the the boss called and said you were right what do we do you know so but i was so embarrassed and my my colleague my new hire said i learned a lot about consulting today <laughs> I said, please please ignore erase don't do, ever do that whatever i just did don't ever do that so i i just lost uh, control of myself yeah i had it and 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 yeah our yeah. our relationship with that company didn't go on much longer but but we did yeah. but the friendship did i mean we've we've stayed in touch but that that's that that startup did go bust yeah
2: mm,
0: okay okay interesting Um, oh, is that the first time you've done that there was a project uh you spoke about in one of your talks where um the the client didn't believe in, that you can bring value, so you said, Okay, if we don't bring value, you pay half our bill, if we bring value, you pay double our bill. And they were so happy with that offer, How <laughs> yes, did that story they were.
1: Go? yeah. And that's that's one of the only times we've gotten sort of value based or closer to value based pricing. Uh, that ended very well for both of us, yeah. It was an interesting because it was with a big company, uh, it was Capital One, they've given me permission to talk about that. It was years and years ago, it was 20 years mm-hmm. ago, and um, Capital One you know, built a whole business around analytics and they do it, do an extremely good job of it. But they were told, get you some of this new data mining stuff. You know, Elder research is pretty good at this. Just, sorry,
0: just car. for everyone. What does, what does capital one do? Ca- uh, credit scoring. So oh,
1: okay, it's a better credit risk for credit cards. So they're a bank now, but at the time they were just credit cards. Um, and, uh, And that's how they made all their money is they said that we can do better than the normal banks at selling who is a good credit risk and who is not. Um, And so they would take the Experian type credit scores and and then add their own intelligence to it and uh, be able to, and they invented the idea of uh, buying other people's customers, doing bank Mm -hmm. transfer, the credit, you know, will Transfer over to us, you know, so take stealing other customers, giving them a better deal. Um, Kind of a cool idea. But they also, this was, this idea was also pretty clever. They had the idea of offering credit to people who had never even been considered before. And because people had never applied before, there was no analytics on them. So they were, they were uh, getting, uh, so there was no data on them either. So they actually had to invest years uh to give people credit had people apply and basically gave them credit no matter what very small amounts of credit 300 350 dollars something like that but they basically said yeah here's credit and and then kept track of them for a few years and uh if they had defaulted after 90 days they considered them or if they hadn't paid after 90 days in the first couple years they considered them late and if not they didn't and uh, they had a machine they had a very very Good and still do, of course, a constantly updated way of building credit that's very good. And but, but it's possible that the data science could be better. And so they were kind of told, okay, go see if any of these new things get this, consulting company to look into some of these new ways of doing it and keep some out of sample data and, you know, do a bake off or, or just I don't know if they were told that or not, but we suggested it. Well, in dealing with the individuals who were sent, I could tell they were very reluctant. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we were forced to do this. So where there's a difference <laughs> of, where there's a difference of opinion, there's a betting opportunity, right? So, so I suggested the half price versus uh, double price. I, I really should have done higher than that, but um, uh, I actually uh, this was a good and and they took me up on it. You know, hey, great half price deal. And the end result was. <laughs> We 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 beat them pretty handily. Now, we didn't beat them by much, but but credit scoring is where if you can beat them by this much, that's tens of millions of dollars because of the leverageability of it. The, the if you can reduce a credit score, if you can reduce the default rate from, you know, X percent to X minus point minus 0.1 percent or whatever, you know, that's tens of millions of dollars. So the accuracy matters a lot. And one of the secrets was ensembles. Using competing Mm -hmm. models, but that wasn't the only secret. Some of the some of the modeling, the more uh, modern modeling techniques at that time were were pretty useful as well. So, uh, you know, and I ask people sometimes. I ask when I'm teaching classes. I say, "Well, who was excited by that?" Obviously, we were, you know. But it turns (laughs) out, you know, for us that was just tens of thousands of dollars. For them, it was tens of millions of dollars. So, yeah, they were
0: really excited by that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. Let's talk about ensembles. Um, <laughs> or in the words of your, um, Spanish translator in, uh, Santiago, Chile, tell the pig Christmas is coming. <laughs>
1: tell us that story. <laughs> yeah. The, um, I, sh- I, sh- the soon after I did a, st- I did a study of five different techniques. We had some friendly arguments in the office. Uh, again, this was 20 years ago, friendly arguments in the office of, you know, which techniques were better was really during this time, too, doing this work for Capital One, we had some friendly competitions going on. And so we, we did some out-of-sample, uh, after we did the Capital One work, we did some out-of-sample tests on some other academic problems using different techniques. And, um, and I have a graph where I show that, you know, every technique that we used on these five different, six different academic problems, of the five techniques that we looked at came in first or second, once or twice, you know, at least twice. So I said, every dog has its day uh, is and I was at a conference in Santiago, Chile. And I said that and the simultaneous translator in Spanish said something with no perros in it. You know, I said something completely different. And I asked her later what she said and she said, it was amazing. She used a, She translated into a local idiom on the fly. She said, tell the pig Christmas is coming. And I was like, "What? you know, like a dog, you know what? And she said, well, you know, in the barnyard, pig thinks it's hot stuff. Christmas is coming. You're going to be dinner. And I said, that's kind of the opposite of what I was saying. But yeah, that's, that is the same point. Yeah. You know, the, the technique that, that was all hot stuff at one on one problem is dinner on the next one is utterly, you know, the worst. And, um, that's sometimes called the no free lunch theory. And that, that, you know, there's no really one best technique that, that the assumptions around the, the, the mechanisms of certain techniques better match certain problems. And so a lot of times people are trying to look, well, what kind of technique, what kind of characteristics does this problem have? And therefore, what technique should I use? And that has its moments. But the very next slide here is if you just put the competing models together in a reasonable way, it does really, really well. In fact, it does almost as well as the best And then even some of the fancier ensembles do as well or better than in this case, the one that won the contest, which was neural nets, won this particular contest of the five techniques that we try. So ensembles and and, and the, even simple ensembles like averaging the predictions of the five different methods to get a new prediction uh, worked, worked very well or voting or, or things. So you don't have to necessarily do fancier ensembles like boosting or ones I invented called advisor perceptrons or things like that. So um, ensembles have, have been a really cool thing and have uh, been adopted all over the place. And uh, I had the opportunity with Giovanni Sini to write a book on that. Um, so I was one of the earlier inventors of the, of the, the idea. And if you look back, but I, I argue that, you know, if you look back in Proverbs, Solomon is talking about if you're going to war, ask a multitude of counselors for advice. You know, like if you're making a really big decision, get a lot of people's advice before you do it. You know, so that's can be thought of as an early ensemble model, in my opinion. So um, it's, it's, it's really an idea that's pretty ancient. But, but one of the big questions, and Pedro Dominguez, who's a fantastic researcher, uh, even as a grad student, won best paper award at uh, one of the KDD, one of the knowledge discovery and data mining conferences. Now I was on the award committee, and I have to mention this, Sorry, Pedro. I voted it second best. But everybody else on the committee voted it first best. Um, so I thought it was an awesome paper, but I disagreed with it. <clears throat> and because uh, uh, Pedro was a great writer and a great researcher, but he, his, the title of the paper was Occam's Razor is Dead. Uh, and one of the reasons, and the Occam's Razor idea is that, that the simplicity is, is better. It, if two things are equally uh, accurate at describing something, you should take a simpler explanation as being the more likely true one, which is really a philosophical idea of William of Ockham in the 14th century, and it's sort of been a, a principle that's guided statistics that you that you regulate complexity and you prefer simplicity, and it's almost a religious belief, if you will. But but he brought out a bunch of of you know heretical you know uh, critiques of that idea, and one of the biggest was. Ensembles. Look at ensembles. They're more complex. You've got multiple models. You're adding them together in some way, and they generalize better. They are doing better than single models at predicting things. So obviously, simplicity isn't, you know, all it's cracked up to be. And I said, you know, I think we I think the problem is, I don't think ensembles are more complex. I think we're measuring complexity wrong. But you know, so I sort of had a background task of proving pedro wrong <laughs> so, <laughs> so, he got the paper award i thought it was second place uh but anyway so it was like pedro i'll prove you wrong you know <laughs> i love pedro he's great but um so i did in story as i did i i i i stumbled across a concept called generalized degree of freedom by a guy named yi who i haven't met yet but who thanked me for advancing his career but uh Anyway, um, and he had a measurement of complexity that measured the flexibility of a model. So he said that a model is complex to the degree that its predictions change when the inputs change. So if, if you add, so he would add noise to the inputs. So you've got a, you've got a black box here. And if mm-hmm. you add noise to the inputs... You refit the model. If the predictions change a lot, then the black box is complex. If they don't change much, then the black box is simple. But Let's say this is an average. You add random noise to your inputs. The average isn't going to change much. Your prediction is going to be almost the same. But if this is some kind of very complex nearest neighbor type thing, then your prediction vector might change a fair amount. So and it turns out with regression, It works perfectly. Uh, It it gives you the the complexity count is the number of coefficients in your regression, but that's the only that's by the way the only technique for which your degrees of freedom is equal to your coefficients. Like if you people have known for a long time that if you build a neural net, your neural net actually has fewer degrees of freedom than all the weights it has in it. That the weights are rather weak; they only have a fraction of a degree of freedom. But if you build a decision tree the degrees of freedom are more than the number of weights in the decision tree the decision tree has three or four degrees of freedom probably for, for each weight people have estimated at different times so if you look at this there's these fractional things in the literature about you know how powerful are the parameters in your modeling method depending on your method it depends on how much data you have how many variables you have all sorts of things and it's kind of confusing well this is this what ye didn't realize is he had come up with the answer to this. He'd come up with a way of measuring, using resampling, the complexity of any modeling method. Wow. So you have this really, and there's it's not enough reason. I don't, I don't read much of the literature, I have to admit. But uh, as, well, as far as I'm aware, people haven't done, there could be so many cool things done with it. And just somebody could just do a big survey of, and figure it out. What the complexity of a whole bunch of different methods is, what the true complexity is, but I I did a little survey, and it showed that the complexity of a few different methods, including the complexity of a single decision tree, versus the complexity of an ensemble of decision trees, and the ensemble of decision trees is simpler than a single decision tree.
0: Wow, more stable,
1: more stable. More simple, more less complex, less flexible, and and it kind of makes sense after the fact if you think about it. Think of an ensemble as a board of directors, all right. So I am the majority stockholder of Elder Research. I reign supreme as a dictator for life, right? Which is a horrible situation. But if I had a board of directors, um, uh, which I'm on a board of directors for a nonprofit, for instance, there when we make a decision, there's different there's experts in different fields. Uh, and they all, we all argue very politely. We argue about things and the decision we make is kind of as a consensus and it's less extreme than if any one of us was dictator. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what the ensemble is like. So the, the, the decision is a less extreme, more consensus decision, and therefore it is less complex. It is less variable given changes in the inputs than if any one of the individual models was in charge uh Mm. so if you measure the complexity of something not by how complex it looks but by how complex it acts the ensemble is less complex and therefore it does not overfit no matter how many models you add to it if the models are independently built without knowledge of the other models then it does not overfit and therefore it
0: generalizes better. Wow. Amazing. That's, that's, that's a very interesting perspective. But on, by that token, if you just output like a zero every time, then that's the most, that's the least complex thing you can ever come up with. And, right,
1: right. I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously, if you're, if you're so simple hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that you're useless, yeah, that, there's, a, there's, a, there's the appropriate level of simplicity. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, fantastic. We'll, we'll find that research paper link to it in the show notes. I think it's <laughs> okay. uh, fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it's, and maybe somebody listening will take on the challenge and measure the complexity of the you know, methods that we have right now.
1: Yeah, it would, be a fun, it would be a fun project to do. I've always wanted to do it. But yeah, it's out there. Uh, Generalized of Freedom, GDF by Yee Y-E is his name. And then uh, the paper that I wrote might be a good starting point. It's in the Journal of Computational and Graphical Statistics. ACGS. Uh, and I also basically reprinted that same journal article in
0: uh, my ensemble book. So. Amazing. Fantastic. Uh, you mentioned neural nets. Um, so, as far as I understand, that experiment that you conducted was in 2017. And uh, you back then made a comment that uh, it's, um, it's not, uh, you saw you're a- not able to know in advance that neural nets will be the best method. Three years have passed. Have your opinions on neural nets changed?
1: Well, you have to realize I hated neural nets as a youngster. Remember, I grew up, okay, they have a saying, to a little boy with a hammer, all the world's a nail, and my Mm -hmm. hammer was polynomial networks. Polynomial Mm -hmm. networks adapt their structure, unlike stupid neural nets, which have a fixed structure, right? Mm -hmm. But polynomial networks Go off to infinity at the edges, unlike well-behaved neural nets that have that beautiful sigmoid stops them but neural nets got all the love, okay polynomial nets got no respect and neural nets got the hype they got the hype uh, the Gartner hype cycle. oh my gosh, they've now been through it three times. Polynomial nets never had their moment in the sun okay so so you know polynomial nets were doing just all, all sorts of good things neural nets didn't even have to tie their own shoes to get a press release whatever. It was was just just not fair. So I was terribly, terribly biased against neural nets, okay? I can give you so many stories. It was just not fair. It was just not fair. Okay, but so I am a reluctant convert to neural nets. I'm like, okay, these things actually are pretty cool. They actually do some pretty cool things. I mean, I did my dissertation on an optimization method, uh, a global optimization method, so I'm no fan at all of the backpropagation because it's such a crude and ugly optimization method that completely misses out on all sorts of things. But hey, it works. You know, it's like, golly, some of its, uh, some of its weaknesses are actually strengths. You know, it doesn't overfit um, the fact that the neural net's uh, using only a fraction of the descriptive power of its weights is actually a strength, you know, In in terms of, 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 again, not overfitting, uh, it drives some people crazy that you can get a different answer with the same exact data because of the random starting points and the random searching. And, you know, I was like, ah, but, but again, that can be seen as a, you know, as neural net people say, that's not a flaw. That's a feature, you know? And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, and they're not, they're not entirely wrong. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a reluctant fan of neural nets. I, I, I do watch with amusement the, the overhype. I, it's glad to see that deep neural nets are starting to get some of the, you know, negative press. They're going over the peak into the trough of disillusionment. You know, it's like, oh, they haven't really set up their experiments quite right. Oh, there are other techniques they can do just as well when, they're, when they do that correctly and so forth. But it's still impressive, some of the problems that they've been able to solve. And they've been able to do a lot more without customized features. They've been able to discover a lot of the features. But I have, when people I've talked to who have done work with customizing features, can get better results than just plugging in the raw data on roughly on the order of about 10%. Which so, But still, just the fact that you can plug in raw data and get 90% Ninety percent of the accuracy that you could do where you know take, you're taking more care that's still very impressive, so neural nets are one of the top techniques that I teach, and I was a long time coming to that level of respect and uh, I'm trying to figure out you know why they work well and so forth but yeah I, I, I feel like if you uh, pare down the inputs to the ones that really matter, it helps a lot if you If you um, control the distributions of your inputs to be roughly normal, it helps a lot. So if you if you you know transform the shapes, uh, and if you get the roughly the hidden nodes to be about the right shape, and you see that I'm talking about old old school neural nets and not deep neural nets, which I don't have much experience with.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, one time you said AI as an alternative source of wisdom is not as good as in inducing models from real data what did you mean by that
1: so uh so where i'm expert and where i've seen things work is when you have data that reflects historical and you learn from that so you induce models from from data so it's the machine learning way of doing things and the 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 traditional ai way of doing things would be more deductive or or top down you know the the expert system, the, um, uh, the the rules based, or or um, not ma- not machine learning. So I think AI is used today to encompass uh, machine learning and everything else. But I'm I'm using the distinction between top down deductive and uh, and bottom up inductive, and mm. saying data science and machine learning are the bottom up uh where you're training on data and ai is is the top down you know you're you're training a car to say when you see a stop sign do this and a stop sign is defined by you know what is it eight sides or six sides and in red and you know whereas inductive modeling would be just taking in a bunch of images and, and saying the cars the driver the expert driver stopped the car when the images look like this figure out why you know And a lot of the success that's being ascribed to AI is really a combination of those two systems. You know, it's it's a lot more efficient if you've got well-defined rules for driving to start with that, and you can immediately get some results, and then refining it with the inductive method is how they're getting. uh, So all the really cool results that that made the, uh, the headlines have been a combination of those two kinds of systems from what I understand.
0: Going back to the ensemble, right yeah, the kind ensemble. of ensemble, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, interesting all right um I'd like to talk a bit about something that you popularize, and I read and uh, watched your video about it. it's fantastic, I think, and it's called the target shuffling method it's a method, an alternative to the um, overused and over relied upon p-value test. Tell us a bit about that. I, I found that method, I'm surprised that more people are using that for evaluating models.
1: Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's probably the biggest uh, problem in science is that there's a crisis in science. Understood that most of the um, articles that are published in science are un uh, uh, unreproducible, so uh, they're basically false. And and the, even uh, the Lancet, which is one of the top medical journals, is published in in Britain. They said in an editorial that they believe half of what they publish is irreproducible or false. They just don't know which half. So it's kind of like marketing for us <laughs> companies. We know that half of what we spend on marketing is worthless. We just don't know which half. You know, um, <laughs> and their standards, of course, are very high. They only accept five percent of the papers that are submitted and not just anyone submits to the Lancet. There's a lot of self-selection before, before they submit. So, and of course they're using P values as a, as a way to say, you know, and the, the P value makes sense if you're doing one experiment. So if you're doing, if you're, if you're rolling one 20 sided die and uh, the chance of it coming up 20 is, is 5%. and but if you roll that die 15 times, the chance that your best roll is a 20 is much, much higher. If you roll it 80 times, you're getting close to certain that you're gonna get a 20, you know? So, and the problem is that people are using the formula as if they rolled it one time when they really have rolled it 17, 35, 170 times. You know, they've really gone back to the well in their data or in their experiment many times. Like, I I play pickup basketball. I know it doesn't look like it, but I I, I enjoy that. And uh, um, you know, uh, or, or maybe golf is a better example. I don't. I only play once a year in a charity tournament, and luckily, it's it's best ball. It's captain's choice. So you know, if I hit one good shot, maybe it'll get used by the team. Well, it's like people are playing best ball, but scoring it as their own card. You know, we all hit it. We take the best shot. And then we go forward and it's like, wow, what a great game I had, you know, <laughs> yeah. or I get, I get a mulligan, I, I hit it into the pond. It's like, well, I'm going to take another shot, you know, and I, I get that one and I count that as my game. And it's like, that's just not a fair card. Uh, mm. And, and I, sorry,
0: so they, so they disregard all the bad, uh, the ones that like a lot of the, the bad outcomes. It's, there's not even, it's not even that bad
1: because they're not really aware that they're doing it. So what'll happen is they do an experiment and then it doesn't really work out right. And they think, well, what if I use a lower temperature? Yeah. And so they'll do another experiment with a lower temperature or they say, well, what if I paint the samples blue first? And, you know, and what if I raise the ultraviolet frequency more or what if I, so, and, and they, and this is ingenuity, right? what Edison, you know, he tried a thousand, he got the brilliant idea that heating a metal would be great to create a light, you know, right? And he tried a thousand different metals. They didn't work. I haven't failed. I've just learned a thousand things that don't work, right? Well, he eventually got the idea of doing it in a vacuum so it wouldn't burn up. But, but he tried a lot of things that didn't work. And this is Amer- all American ingenuity, right? And people are trying a lot. They're changing the experiment and they're trying all sorts of things and they're learning, right? But what they're really doing also is rolling the dice again, rolling the dice again, rolling the dice again. They're trying something different, but they're also having another roll at the dice.
2: And chance is going to work sometimes. You got to think about that. You know, they're, not just, they're not
1: just trying something different. They're also rolling the dice again. So this is the philosophy of statistics. Every time you try something, there's a chance it'll work by chance, right? That's, that's what you have to actually, that idea has to enter your head. I'm doing something, and it might be because the physics or the biology or whatever works, but it also might be that it just, I got lucky because there's a casino and there's, it's not the way you pull that handle down. It's just that that machine was going to win that time, Right. So anytime you do an experiment with psychology undergrads, you know, doing something, it could be just that the order that they came in lined up with their heights or whatever it is, there's always some chance, right? So you're rolling the dice with each one, but you're also feeding them carrots versus feeding them crackers or doing whatever. And you might think it's the carrots versus the crackers when it's really just that time. It's just the dice, just the roll of chance. So every time you change your experiment and you do something, it could be the thing you did, but it's also the dice. And one of them works, but you rolled the dice a hundred times, and you published that one thing. See, nobody yeah. thinks I cheated, because they were just trying all sorts of different ideas, but they didn't have embedded in their brain. There is chance is one of the possible explanations for any result I get. And can this result be replicated if we did it again? They're just grateful to get it done, and to get it published, to get it going on. They truly aren't cheating. They aren't they aren't defrauding anybody
0: intentionally,
1: but they really are. Yeah. Because okay. Okay. I think that result doesn't work.
0: I think I got it. So, like, it's their test is statistically significant given that the dice is rolled to the same number that it was rolled when they ran the test.
1: That's right. Right. They'd rolled a 20. They really rolled a 20 and they did something different from the other times. They painted it green or they turned down the temperature or they used their left hand and it finally yeah. worked and they published it. but so would have changing nothing and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it or would it have, that's what they have to test it against. What they have to test it against is, okay, you did it 31 times. What would just rolling the dice 31 times, how many times would it have worked? What's your true probability that it would have worked. You would have gotten that level of a P value with making no changes to your experiment. Just with the level of variation that you had in your data and the level of significance that you're looking for, not making any changes, but just the number of experiments, number of tries, number of rolls of the dice that you did, what would have been the chance? That's the test you need to use.
0: And that's where your target shuffling
1: comes that's in. That's where target shuffling comes in. It says, what wow. is the real test? Now, that's one level of target shuffling. There's another level that's even more crazy that's even more real for when you use machine learning to do your thing. It says, okay, Mm -hmm. now that you've changed your data, now you need to use your model to see what the model could extract from the data. And you got to beat that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, that's deep target shuffling. (laughs) So anyway, uh, but yeah, there's more about that. We have a two minute animated video to explain target shuffling on our website at elderresearch.com. And, and that sometimes it gets gets the concept across better than, than i I can because some people like animated videos but um
2: yeah.
1: but anyway the 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 concept you know there was a there was a cancer researcher that uh, and his crew that had published this great paper and a company wanted to replicate the results and they they couldn't they they tried to follow what was in the paper and this was a and reported on here in Charlottesville uh, a few years back and the company tried to follow the the, the paper and they they just couldn't get the results, so they got an, an NDA, a, a non-disclosure agreement with the professor and his students, and flew them all to the company's site, had them watch the experiment, and the, and the professor said, you, got, you know what, you guys did it all right, you did everything right, don't worry about it, it didn't work for us the first six times either. Of course, there was no mention of that first six times in the journal article, but you know,
0: (laughs) classic example of what you said of the dice rolling. Yeah, gosh, (laughs) (laughs) all right, okay, gotcha. So, so, so how does this target shuffling work? Like, in a nutshell, yeah, so the target
1: shuffling, in a nutshell, um, so what you do, yeah, you have a matrix of data, um, Mm -hmm. And what you do is you detach the Y variable from everybody else. You've got your, your here's the characteristics of the, of the data point. Like I use the example of um, you got a classroom of people. You have a bunch of, they've answered a lot of personal questions about themselves. So this is one person and all the questions they've answered about themselves. And here's their score on the statistics test. And so everybody has taken a test and they've answered a lot of questions. How many sisters they have, whether they were in the glee club, whether they played sports, whether they're on the chess team, you know, all these sorts of things. So which ones are predictive of whether they're good at statistics or not? And so you've got this class of 30 people. Now what you do is you give everybody this data set and see if they can build a model to predict it. But what you, what you, what you didn't tell everyone is you've given everyone a different data set where you've shuffled the Y values. Now when I've actually done this, and I've been cruel and done this, I, don't, I give everyone where their answer is correct they know who they yeah. are, even though no names are there. They know they can identify their questions, and they know about what they scored. But I shuffle everybody else. So anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, but I give everyone a different data set where the target value, the output variable, has been shuffled and reassigned to everybody else. So everyone should have… So a com- complete
0: garbage data complete set. Complete
1: garbage, Exactly there should be no real relationship between the output variable and the input variables but all the input variables are like if if there's any relationship in the input variables it should be real like yeah someone's pregnant they should be female that sort of thing you know like there should be no I- illegal input combinations yeah. because they yeah. haven't been changed it's just they've been assigned somebody else's test grade the uh, targets. except except the target variables except for one person and that's fine so any relationships that they actually find are from the null world, the world of the null hypothesis. They're from the world of noise. They are a, you've created a universe where noise is, null, nullness rules, and you've, <laughs> you know, and you've said, I, that model comes from that universe. And so that, that is an indication of what the distribution of of noise models is the distribution of models that where nothing is real. Where does My model fit in that distribution. Where does my model of real data fit in a distribution of, of models of not real. And, and there'd be a, there's, there's probably a model from the, the null world. That's better than my model. There's probably a stronger relationship that just, that was random, but is it, Am I in the 1%, the 10%, the 50%? You know, if I'm in close to 50%, then my model is no better than the random models. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that I shouldn't trust it. Yeah. If my model's up in the 5% or 1%, then that's my true P value. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean actually, my, my value is the true P value. The value you get is what the P value is supposed to be. It's mm-hmm. how, see, the, the question in statistics, the significance question, I should have said this at the beginning, is, you know, of, all, of chi-squared tests, f-squared, p-value tests, t-tests, all of the questions in, in statistics I finally realized is, how likely could I have gotten this result by chance? How likely is this? How interesting is this? How likely could a result better than this have occurred by chance? Mm-hmm. And so that's what you're physically measuring. You're saying, oh, you know, where is this? You know, this is the distribution of results by chance. And this is my real distribution. What's the area under the curve better than my real one? Mm-hmm. And that's the P value. That's the real P value. So P value is a measure of interestingness, but it's not a probability. And what you're doing is you're calibrating this to find out what probability, where it translates to a probability. And that'll differ depending on how many experiments you did, how deep your data is, how powerful your data mining algorithm is. So it depends on the particulars of your experimental situation. But just by running this experiment, you can calibrate it and get an answer that's universal, which is what Mm -hmm. p-value is supposed to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Problem solved. Mind blown. (laughs) Mind blown. This should be... Really used uh, across the board by researchers. It should be used
1: everywhere, everywhere.
0: And yeah. I, I
1: did invent it, but it's probably out there. There's, there's some other things with similar names. There's some other ideas. Um, but I, you know, I've been in this business for thirty years, and I'd never heard anyone talk about it. I'd never heard anyone use it. And so uh, when I kind of invented it. And and when I realized when I saw what I saw was a cover article of the economist that said, what's wrong with science or science, how science has gone wrong or something like that. As I was going through the London airport and I I was was very intrigued by that and saw it. And it was a very good summary of this problem. And I, I actually didn't realize how widespread the problem was, how, how there was a crisis in science. I mean, I, you know, I see a lot of problems, but of course I thought, well, I'm like a doctor. Of course I see sick patients, you know, I'm, I've been called in to solve this problem. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that it was so pervasive that it's in every field that the majority of research was unreliable everywhere in every field, medical, chemistry, engineering, every field of published papers, which is the highest standard, peer-reviewed published papers, much less conference work, everything. I didn't realize the problem was, so since I learned that, I've sort of, tried to speak on this in every opportunity. So thank you for giving me this opportunity because the message is so important. It's like, you know, how many lives are lost? How many billions is lost in, in wasted effort because of people going down blind paths because they think that something's worthwhile, but it's just a spurious correlation that was stumbled across and somebody's somebody thought it was real, you know, and, and if we can just share this technique or things like it, that, that, you know, can separate the truth from not truth. We can focus our efforts on things that really matter
0: yeah it's and it's like billions it's okay, you know, but the lives that's you know doctors, medical research use this, and they publish results, and you know that that drug actually doesn't do anything, and people drink it and take it and whatever else and and in the end it's uh it's all it's all wrong, so it's just such a such an important topic, probably like. Why do you think it's so hard to to get it out there? Like, I is it because people, you know, is if researchers use methods like target shuffling in addition or instead of p value, then they're less likely to publish a research paper, and that means more work for them. Is I, that the reason?
1: Yes, I, I think there's a huge hurdle because, for instance, I taught one of the first places I taught this. Uh, a young researcher came up to me and said, "You're now making it harder to publish than ever. You know, what have you done?" <laughs> You know, and it's like, well, yeah, I think she's right. I think, I, I think so. Absolutely, I'm making it harder to publish than ever. If people are still using the old method, uh, and then I'm anyone who uses my method would be like tying one leg and one arm behind their back, competing against somebody using the other method. You know, if you're allowed yeah. to publish with a method that that lets you get by cheating, then yeah. if you're h- holding up to the rules. You won't be able to compete unless yeah. you're extraordinarily lucky or good. But even if everybody was able to do it right, there's going to be less publishing yeah. because half the papers wouldn't make it, right? I mean, even if doing it right, some papers are going to get through that aren't republishable because
2: there's always, even when you're measuring it right, there's going to be an unknown fraction. A, a,
1: right now they think things are calibrated in such a way that one out of 20 papers are supposedly unreproducible when it's really more like 19 out of 20 are unreproducible. That's, that's how bad the, the problem really is. I mean, I've talked about, Oh, over half. Well, John Ioannidis of Stanford, who's one of the, who's the most quoted doctor, the most referenced doctor of all time and an expert on, on this problem of the crisis in science. He, he I'm, I'm in the same camp that he is and believe that the problem is in the 90 to 95% range in terms of papers, not 50%. Like that 90 to 95% of the papers published are unreproducible. So the problem is huge. So in, let's just say it's 90%. So 10% of the papers that are published today probably should be published. So once people are doing it right, the, the amount of publishing is going to go down a lot. So there's going to have to be other ways of measuring people's productivity and so forth. So it's going to be, it's just going to be enormously painful transition uh, which is going to be fought at a lot of different levels. And so, you know, it's, I'm kind of tilting at windmills, but uh, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of good work going on. There's, there's some advances where people are realizing that, it's a problem and they're trying to do some things about it. Some journals are, I mean, half the problem is the the business of science and some journals are saying you have to publish your data to get published. uh, Although that's failing for the most part, but you know, one sign of one science magazine, a few years ago, one of its awards they gave to a a kind of a landmark study uh, that was actually led by the university of Virginia, just a mile away from me but a hundred different um, psychology papers were revisited by teams all over who were reproducing the work from a few years earlier. The top psychology papers published a few years earlier were revisited and they were only able to reproduce 36 of the hundred papers. Uh, wow. And that, and that, that was a, that got an award, that big study got an award. So the problem of reproducibility and giving people recognition for doing reproducibility studies is, is getting some attention, but what they need to do is they need to change these metrics for publishing and use techniques like, like target shuffling. And that is going to be a really tough battle. Hmm. But yeah, I'm all for it, obviously. Um, I'll do everything I can to help.
0: <laughs> we should start something like a, um, a fund for, you know, like there's the Nobel prize, uh, award and fund maybe they can be a, a fund for uh, people doing reproducibility so that can become a career in its own right so you go and you police these research papers and you try to reproduce them and then you de- dispute like you know debunk them and that way um eventually people will get the get the idea that hey don't publish stuff unless you've tested it properly
2: Yeah.
1: I guess there is already the ignoble prizes of it, (laughs) but no, that's, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Anything would help. And, um, it's yeah, there's, there's just a vast number of scientists and they're all under a lot of pressure to advance their career and they're doing the best they can. There's very, very little intentional fraud, although that does occasionally happen. And there's a lot of this, like I said, you know, trying a lot of things and not realizing that they're not accounting for it properly.
0: Fantastic, gotcha. Um, John, we're running out of time. It's, it's such a wonderful conversation. I'd love to keep going. Um, I'll ask you one more question, which is um, which I'm really curious about. From your experience, 25 years in the field and how it's rapidly, explosively changing right now, what do you think the future holds? What should people entering this field now or who are already in this field, what should they prepare for so they're ready for what's coming in like three or five years from now?
1: Oh my gosh, you'd think as a data scientist, I would, I would look at the future. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, plan is a four-letter word for me. Uh, uh, I, I get into... So right outside my window is a Lewis and Clark statue. So Charlottesville was where they came from. Uh, Lewis and Clark in Sacagawea. Uh, oh th- they,
0: those uh, that went the 3 year trip yeah to yeah, the west
1: the, and back and, and discovered the the through the west going through St Louis all the way to the to uh Portland <laughs> I guess um <laughs> and um w- uh but anyway uh and and back and I think only one person died on the trip they had appendicitis I think uh so it was a tremendously successful trip went through what could have been a lot of hostile tribes, but actually made very positive contact with them. A lot of amazing things. Uh, Sacagawea, for instance, had uh, been captured from one tribe to another. She spoke both languages. That was very helpful. The fact that she was along and also had a child along the way and meant to some of the tribes that they met, that they weren't hostile because why were they traveling with a woman and child? If they were hostile. Uh, you know, there were a lot of, one of the chiefs they met turned out to be her brother. You know, it was just, it was mm. astonishing some of the things, but I, so this enormous, and it was a very scientific trip. They brought back samples of, they met grizzly bears, by the way, which on the East Coast, no one had ever conceived of the concept of a grizzly bear and the grizzly bears were not stopped by rifles. They, the fact that they survived encounters with grizzly bears is amazing. Uh mm. That was a, that really shook them up. But anyway, I use sometimes that trip as an example of, you know, they planned only so much. And after that, it was a whole lot of improvising. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, had, they had a lot of skills. They had uh, a lot of courage. And they, the party actually was quite democratic and made decisions by consensus along the way. And they had to build canoes and travel by rivers. They had to scale mountains. And that's kind of 25 years of in business. I had so many surprises along the way. So many positive and negative shocks to the system. Uh, and it's like, you know, whatever three-year or five-year plans I had just got blown to bits. But by having good people and having, uh, paying attention to the customers and doing good work, you know, we survived and thrived and uh, rode the rapids, you know, went over waterfalls we didn't know were coming, you know, and, uh, and, and sort of felt like we had our Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, we, we, we learned a lot along the way. Uh, we were well prepared, we were alert. And I kind of laugh about planning like, oh, what good would planning mean? Now, I have a, luckily, I have a colleague. really good at planning (laughs) and he hears me tell this story and (laughs) it kind of pushes me aside and he says you know lewis and clark (laughs) took with them (laughs) you (laughs) know this and that and things to trade with with people they would encounter and and then all this good equipment and you know they didn't just like set out one day you know so it's like it was really a mix between the two and and you know i think the the common theme has been you know, I love learning about new things and the people that we get, there are some that are really good about learning about the greatest new thing. You heard me say, I don't know, deep neural, nets, pretty cool, but I don't know much about them, but I got some friends who do, you know, and thank goodness, because you have <laughs> to know about the, the new technology, but you don't have to know, not everybody has to know everything, but you have to have, it's, you have to have people that like doing that in their spare time. You know, that they they actually like this. Like I said, if you, when I earlier story about, hey, do what your boss said, but you also look into it in your own time. If you, if you're not that kind of person, you're in the wrong field. You know, if you're not, not that you spend all the extra hours all the time, but when you're on something, you're intrinsically interested in it and you want to solve that mystery. Like you like to solve puzzles, you like to solve mysteries and you get a real high out of that discovery, you know, and. And also, you know, it's an opportunity to serve people. You know, it's an opportunity to, uh, this is such a fantastic field because we go in there and say on anti-fraud work, you know, we're working with a government agency, we're tripling their productivity you know, often. You know, they're, they're working in a, in, a, in a system where things are siloed and we're bringing data from all sorts of places and we're helping them with the same amount of effort, triple the amount of fraud that they discover and, and prosecute. They're getting awards. They're getting but but more than that, they're getting fired up in their career again. They're getting energized. They may have been there 20 years, but now they are fired up. They're they're doing stuff they didn't even think was possible. And they see you coming. They're excited to see you coming. And they've got new ideas that they want to try out. And so we're continually having these very positive experiences. And so it's it's a it's a fantastic field to be in. And uh, you know, I just uh I I, I don't think about retirement. I think about, you know, maybe working a few fewer hours a day, you know, but, (laughs) but it's just not really work. It's, uh, it's fun. So, you know, if you, if you, if you like it, you, you, you stay, uh, you, you learn something that adds to the team. You don't have to know everything, but you do something that makes you valuable to the team and, uh, and keep up with it. And, um, Pay attention to people and their needs you're gonna thrive
0: love it love it thank you very much john amazing words of wisdom and a great point to wrap this podcast up i want to thank you it's been a huge pleasure having you in the show and uh before you go please tell us what's the best way for people uh, to find you and your work Um, we didn't mention but uh, of course if uh, you're interested in consulting work john uh, and Elder Research is there for you. And also, you're hiring always uh, talented yes. people. So where can they find you and get in touch?
1: Yeah, so elderresearch.com is our uh, web. And um, my email is elder at elderresearch.com. Uh, so lots of elders in there. Uh, we're not elderly care people, but uh, <laughs> got not very creative in the name when we started. But um, uh, yeah, we... We'd love to hear from you and um, we, when, with our clients, our goal is to be trusted partners, you know, to pay attention to the needs that, that the client has and um, give our honest advice and uh, be there when they need us and not be there when they don't need us you know, and uh, be the ones that they, they think of uh, and trust to, uh, to
0: have their needs first. Amazing. Thank you. And it's okay for people to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Absolutely. Be honored. Wonderful. Thank you, girl. All right. John, it was a pleasure. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you everybody for being here and sharing this time with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So many cool insights and so many amazing jokes by John along the way. Had a Fantastic, a fabulous time talking with John. My favorite parts, it's just so much to choose from. From campfire tales and data science to ensemble methods to um neural networks and p-values. I'm going to probably pick the p-values and target shuffling because I have all like often wondered why are p-values failing us, why they're not good in terms of when no longer they're used. Practical for research purposes. Why are so many research papers uh, not reproducible? John explained it beautifully with his analogy of rolling the dice and changing your experiment at the same time. Finally, I was able to understand it. And the whole target shuffling method will put a link to the um, video, the animated video will put a link to that in the show notes. Highly recommend checking it out. I've watched it several times now. Very, very powerful method. And uh, if you can incorporate that in your data science project and especially in your research, let's make the world a better place. Let's include a method. Like if you know another method, please find that. But otherwise, try including target shuffling in your research and validate it that way rather than just with a p-value. So there we go. That was our podcast with John Elder. As usual, you can get the show notes at superdatascience.com slash 391. That's superdatascience.com slash 391. Uh, there you'll get uh, the animated video a link to the animated video the URL to John's LinkedIn make sure to connect uh, a link to elderresearch.com which which is quite easy to find as well if you're looking for a job or for a super experienced consulting company to help you out with your projects then check it out that's elderresearch.com plus you'll get the transcript for this episode and the video version of this episode also available at uh, that uh, link If you enjoyed this episode, if you got a lot out of it, please share it with somebody that you know who is excited about data science, who's as excited about data science as you are and wants to learn. And or if you know somebody in research, send them this episode. Again, let's make the world a better place. Let's move on from p-values and find and apply better methods to validating our research. It's always very easy to share. Just send the link superdatascience.com slash 391. On that note, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.